Amen. You can be seated. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be in verse 15 and following this morning. Matthew 24. Well, one of the things that amazes me the most about our present culture is how quickly the headlines of the news get forgotten. Now, I got to tell you, most of the time, I think that's a bad thing because before you can even see whatever has made the headline remedied, we've moved on to something else. We've got a little, I don't know, attention deficit disorder as a culture today. But even though that may be true most of the time, sometimes when the headlines move on, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. And that happened about 10 years ago. I'll never forget on May the 21st, 2011, when Harold Camping said at 6 p.m. the end of the world would come and would start at that date. And I don't know if you remember when that all happened. It got a lot of attention and a lot of headlines. I saw billboards on the sides of the roads talking about it. And I will always remember that particular time in which someone was predicting the end of, Jesus, the end of time because I was scheduled to perform my next-door neighbor's wedding on May the 21st, that Saturday evening, at 6 o'clock that night. And the whole time I was thinking, well, if he's right, I guess I won't finish this wedding. So the wedding was scheduled to happen. I went to the rehearsal at the venue. Everything was set. And the day of the wedding, the forecast was ominous. It was one of the worst thunderstorms that ever came. And sure enough, minutes before the wedding was to start, remember, 6 p.m. when the world was supposed to end, according to Harold Camping, the worst thunderstorm that I can recall happened that day. The wind was blowing water up underneath the doors of this building we were in. The w- windows were, sh- were, were rattling because the thunder was so loud. I had never heard thunder that loud. And as all that was happening, I got to tell you, I started to wonder, maybe Mr. Camping knew something that I didn't. I don't know. But then the Six o'clock hour came, the thunderstorm went off, just it, 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 it calmed. The wedding then started, and believe it or not, we're still here. And when I think about that whole event and what happened, it just reminds me. Throughout history, there have been so many that have tried to predict the actual time of Jesus' return and when the end of the world would begin. And so many times that we have heard those predictions, none of them have proven to be true. They've all been wrong. But aren't you thankful that when we open up our Bible to Matthew chapter 24, the voice of the one who speaks this, these verses is a voice that we can truly trust. His intent isn't like the herald campings of the world that have tried to tell us when the world was going to end and identify the exact date and the time that it would happen. But when you read in Matthew 24, verses 15 and following, you read that Jesus' focus is a lot different. He's going to talk about the attitudes and the character that we need to have that will guide us as true followers as we move closer to the return of Jesus is what we talked about last week, the birth pains continue to intensify. The disciples, they look down on the temple from the Mount of Olives. And remember what it says in the Gospel of Mark? Look, teacher, at what 
wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. To which Jesus responds, there won't be left here one stone upon another. All of these stones are going to be thrown down. Well, the disciples, after Jesus said that, they just couldn't let that statement go. The destruction of the temple was so incomprehensible to them that they reasoned it must mean that the world would accompany the temple going down. The end of the world must accompany that event. Well, after teaching his disciples of what to expect so that they can be guarded, guarded from disillusionment, and that's what we read in verses 3 of chapter 24 down through verse 14. Jesus picks back up in talking about the destruction of the temple in verse 15. Read it with me. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray for your flight, that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great destruction such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and pro false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Whenever you read the Olivet Discourse, especially Matthew chapter 24, there are two main prophecies that Jesus addresses. The destruction of Jerusalem and Jesus' return as king. And the near event of the destruction of Jerusalem, an event that happens approximately 40 years after Jesus voices these words that I just read that were recorded by Matthew, that near event is partially fulfilled, fulfills the prophecy that will be fully fulfilled far later. David Platt expresses this beautiful relationship in this principle, when he sees that these two events, the destruction of the Jerusalem and the return of King Jesus, are two progressive mountain peaks, one, on which, one of which sets the stage for the other. So here Jesus uses the destruction of the temple, an event that actually does happen, to foreshadow the glorious return that he will one day have in the second coming. And so this is where, as we understand these verses, you need to listen to me very closely. Most of what we are going to study in our verses this morning, they took place in that event 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. 
Verse 15 begins with the word, so when you see the abomination of desolation. It's a quotation from the prophet Daniel. And you find this back in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And many who, believe, who lived in Jesus' day, the time of his public ministry, they believed that this prophecy from Daniel was fulfilled in the year 167 B.C., Because it was in that year that an ancient king ordered for an altar of Zeus to be constructed on in the temple and for a pig, which is a complete abomination for the people of God to ever think a pig, an unclean animal, would be slaughtered on the altar within the temple. They believed that pig would be, when that pig was sacrificed in that altar, thanks to this ancient king to, in, in honor of Zeus, They looked at that as being the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now, I got to tell you, that event was horrific. Can you believe anyone would do such a thing? But when Jesus speaks these words, he's talking about something far worse that was on the way. The absolute destruction of both the temple and the city of Jerusalem that took place in the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70 was what Jesus was prophesying that was coming. And to end a Jewish revolt that had started just four years before in the year A.D. 66, the Roman general Titus overtook Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70 on the actual day, August the 29th of that dreadful year. And first, the Romans... They decided that they were going to preserve the glorious temple. But when the temple was gutted by fire that was set by one of the soldiers, Caesar decided to raise the whole city and the temple and to burn everything to the ground. One historical commentary read this way, Once the temple burned, the soldiers were so eager to retrieve the gold which melted and flowed into the tracks, into the cracks between the stones, that these soldiers overturned the huge stones to retrieve the gold. So just as Jesus predicted, not one stone that was theirs, the disciples were looking upon the temple, was left upon another. And I read that this devastation was so severe that if you were to have walked on the temple site not long after the Roman soldiers finished their awful deed, you would have hardly even believed that there had been such a glorious building that even existed there to begin with. So this is what Jesus is talking about in these verses. So as God-fearing people were preparing for a darkness that was coming upon them unlike any they had ever imagined, The question is, what are they going to do? And as we ask that question of people who lived in the days of AD 70, there's a similar question we need to answer for us today. Here's what I want us to consider as we think about these verses that we're studying this morning that brings this all together. Jesus' prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction calls believers to obedience and prayer And for us to patiently await his return. So knowing what to do in the face of tribulation. It is indeed one of the most important issues that we need to discuss. Whenever you talk about 
biblical prophecy. Whenever you dive into the study, dive into the study of end time prophecy. I've heard oftentimes preachers and even church members use the joke that I'm heard. I'm sure they've heard in pulpits before. They'll talk about all the different funny terms we like to use to talk about biblical prophecy. I call them funny just because they're long, and if you're not in the church, you don't understand what they mean. But some people say things like, "I'm not a, I'm not a, 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 a." Premillennialist, I'm not a postmillennialist. I call myself a panmillennialist because I believe that everything's just going to pan out in the end. And that way, people like to talk about it because let's just be honest, there's all kinds of different views that people have in pulpits and pews regarding how we interpret these last, these events that mark the last days. And it brings us to that conclusion. Now, I get why people say those kind of things. And there have been times I've said those things too. In a state of humility, you don't want to be narrow and dogmatic on this particular view because as you try to bring these things together, we all have to admit that we're not going to understand it perfectly until we see it having gone through it and we look back and we see it in hindsight. So people say, well, I'm just not going to hold a view. I just, just assume just let it all play out and I'm going to be a panmillennialist and just let it all take place but can I guard you against that just for a minute because if we're not careful we'll take that view and make the mistake of thinking that it's okay to not carefully study what the Bible teaches about what will accompany the return of Jesus and we'll just assume that's left up for someone else and can I tell you God has made it clear and revealed many of these things to us so that we can understand them that as we carefully approach the scripture with humility, we can know what God has spoken about what will happen as we move closer to the end of times. And we need to study them carefully because through holding to the conviction that Jesus will certainly and undoubtedly return and his return will be very visible and will be done with his power, as we hold to that view, we will then maintain hope and faithfulness no matter how dark and hard life gets. So I want us to really look at this text carefully and ask the same question of us that was asked of these who lived back in the days of AD 70 when this awful thing happened to Jerusalem. What does this text teach us to do when we face times of great tribulation? And when we ask that question of this text, there's several answers. The first thing that we see from this passage in verses 16, 17, and 18 is this. Obey Jesus' warnings. Do you see how these three imperatives roll out in verses 16, 17, and 18? When the Roman soldiers march into Jerusalem, believers who are living there, who are part of the church, going through this tribulation of AD 70, they were called to fight, but in a way that was extremely difficult. Their fight wasn't anything like what you might expect. They weren't called to draw their sword. Jesus didn't want them to do what Peter did when Jesus was arrested when he drew his sword and he cut off the ear of one of those soldiers. Instead of drawing their soldier and sinking and, and just putting down their, their, their heels and digging in and fighting, they were called to do something different. Jesus says in verse 16, flee to the mountains and be saved. In verse 17, he says, don't go into your house 
and retrieve anything that's there. Verse 18, he says, don't turn back. And why does he say these things in verses 17 and 18? Because cloaks and belongings, they can be replaced, but your life cannot. Now is the time to leave Jerusalem and go out trusting in the Lord's future provision. Well, when you think about these awful soldiers overtaking the town, you might think, well, that's an easy thing to follow. But let's just stop and really consider. That'd be so hard for us if we faced the same circumstances. Following Jesus in obedience meant that you had to turn away from everything that you had built your life on. You had to look at a temple almost the same way as Lot and his wife were called to look at Sodom and Gomorrah when they were to flee from the wrath that was coming and understand that they would leave that place and never turn around and look at those things again. History tells us that the church of Jerusalem did leave the city. They, go on, they went on to live another day. They followed Jesus' words here. But if you were to wonder, as you read this text, why is retreat not just acceptable but commanded by the Lord? I just want you to think of it this way. To die for the sake of the gospel is one thing. But to die for the temple that had moved past its expiration date was not worth it. When the temple veil was torn from top to bottom with the death of Jesus, a heavenly sign was figuratively nailed to the temple door that read, Out of Order. The temple was no longer needed for the forgiveness of sin. The final and the perfect sacrifice for sin had been offered in Christ. Remember what John the Baptist said? There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God had come. He had died on the cross as the sacrifice. The sin of the world was removed. Why would disciples of Jesus die protecting a temple that was no longer in service? So Jesus calls them to flee, to not go into the house, and to not turn back for their cloak. So how about us? At the end of the day, when it comes to imperatives like these, the ultimate question we have to ask is, do we believe that Jesus truly knows what he's talking about? We live in an age that tries to convince us that God is pleased with any and all forms of relational love, even when that relationship of love disregards the definition of the family that he has established as a part of his creation from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Despite the order of creation that God calls, and despite the order of creation and Despite the fact that God calls sinful any sexual expression of love outside of the confines of marriage, current culture says those things at the end of the day don't matter. Any form of love is a good thing. And if you believe differently, you're a bigot. And when we face these times, we ask the same question. Does Jesus really know what he's talking about? We say amen when we read that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will never pass away. So that means that we fully believe that everything Jesus says in his word is true. What Jesus has said about marriage, it matters. About divorce, matters. About adultery, it matters. 
about prayer, about fasting, about our need to live with humility, about the need to do away with materialism in our lives, about the way to live generously before others and give of ourselves for the right causes. If we believe that God's Word never passes away, we believe everything that God says about these things is true, don't we? Even when the click of a computer seems so enticing, even when the touch of a human hand seems more rewarding than the touch of the hand of God, even when the government accuses us of discrimination, we still believe that God knows what he's talking about. Even if the culture and standing against it will come at great cost whenever we stand against where the culture is going, God's word will stand forever. Even then, no matter how hard it gets, God still knows what he's talking about. Obedience in the face of tribulation as we live out God's word is something that we need to hold up as something that is of incalculable importance to us. So obey Jesus' warnings and just follow him. Along with that, we learn from these verses that we need to pray for protection. You cannot be helped but struck by the flow of the next few imperatives. Verse 19 tells us that it will be an unbearable time for women who are pregnant and nursing when the tribulation comes. The times that the Jews faced in AD 70 were so awful that the Jewish historian Josephus reported that Jewish parents resorted to cannibalism of their own children. Over 100,000 Jews in AD 70 were enslaved by the Romans. Over 1 million Jews were mercilessly killed. The world had not seen tribulation of this magnitude even going back to the world's beginning, according to Jesus in verse 21. And if these days had not been cut short, none of the Jews would have lived, is what it says in verse 22. So when we face these times, along with our obedience, there's something else that we're called to do, according to verse 20. Verse 20 says, pray. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. I don't think we talk about the truth of the importance of prayer as we should. We just don't talk about it enough. Scripture calls us in texts like 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray constantly. Jesus, when he teaches on prayer, he begins in Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 and then on into Matthew chapter 6 verse 7 by telling us, when you pray, it is unfathomable for Jesus that a Christian would truly be a Christian and not be a person who prays. You have texts that are so intriguing. The Bible says in Matthew 6, verse 8, that God knows what we need even before we ask, but he still wants us to ask. Clearly, Jesus tells us over and over again, God wants us to talk to him. He wants us to have conversations with him with regularity. That's what our relationship with him should look like. It's not just about believing the right things, but every single day living a life of intimacy with the Lord in constant communion and fellowship through prayer. Now, there is a mystery involved in prayer, isn't there? 
If God already knows what we need, but he still calls us to ask, what really happens when we pray? There's a mystery in that, but I want you to know God still calls us to pray. Just think about it in the Old Testament. When Abraham prayed, it made a difference. When Moses prayed, it affected God. When you read throughout the Scripture, all you see over and over again is that this principle holds true, and the same is true for us. Jesus called the disciples to pray that the flight from Jerusalem's destruction would not happen in the winter. And you know what? It happened on August the 29th. It didn't happen in the winter. Prayer matters. It makes a difference. So obey the Lord's warnings. Pray for God's protection when we face times of tribulation. And thirdly, wait for his return. I clearly see the two mountain peaks of Jerusalem's destruction and the return of Jesus as we study these verses. It's an intriguing thing when you think about it. It's almost as if he can't even get past Jerusalem before he starts talking about the return of Jesus. Did you, did you catch some of, the, some of the clues here? It says on verse 22, And if those days had not been cut short, he's not just talking about the Jews. No human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, the days will be cut short. He goes on to tell us so many other things that all of a sudden he's moving away from AD 70 into something that has yet to happen. The prophecy was partially fulfilled with the temple and the city's demise, but the complete fulfillment is being foreshadowed. An even greater tribulation, one that will impact the entire earth, is yet to come that is darker than anything anyone has yet to see. And the days of this dark tribulation will be cut short for the sake of the elect. So that the lives of believers will be saved. And in those days, we'll need to persevere. And you know what's going to be true? We're going to get antsy. This morning in the first service, we had a whole row filled with Mainers. Can you imagine... How hard it must be on an eight-hour trip with ten kids in the car asking how much longer until you get there. It's a funny way of thinking about how antsy we get. But things in these dark days will be so hard. Antsy is not even a fitting word to describe how we'll be feeling. We'll have to encourage each other as much as ever, especially when dark miracle workers are publicly claiming to be the Christ. False messiahs and false prophets, according to what Jesus says, they're going to be performing great signs. They will amaze you with their acts of great wonder. They're going to be much like the sorcerers in the days of Moses. Because as Moses turns his staff into a snake, they will also turn their sticks into snake. They'll be much like those who are able to do what Moses, when he turned water into blood, they'll be able to duplicate that same act. They may even be able to do like the plague when Moses called for the frogs to take over the whole earth, and they can also call for the frogs. Many will be tempted to look at these dark magic workers and think that they are humanity's rescuer. And they will tell you that Messiah is in this room, or to go out into the wilderness, and when you do, you'll find him. He'll be there. 
How profound when we really read the words of Christ here. We need the Bible, not just so that we know what we need to believe. We're going to need the Bible so that we will then know what not to believe. And these false prophets, these false teachers, will use their dark magic to mimic the works of the Lord. But can I just tell you, their power is not strong enough to save. Jesus tells us these truths beforehand. He says in verse 25, for a reason. And you know why he's told us these things? So that we, church, will be ready. And do not be mistaken. Preserving, uh, persevering in our waiting is going to be worth it. Because Jesus tells us that the day will come that he will return. When the waves of the sea, as I can envision them, they will clap their hands in praise. When the lion will praise the Lord with the loudness of his roar of victory. When the trees will bend and they'll bow their branches in humble submission to him. For the text says as the lightning cuts across the entire sky, it's going to be obvious we will know that Christ has come. And all of creation will know that the Redeemer has returned. And no one will have to question, is that Jesus? They will know that it is. The text ends in this section in verse 28 telling us that like encircling vultures, there's an obvious signal when you see them flying around the sky that there is something dead that is near. Everyone will have that same sign with the coming of Christ. All of God's creation will know that the King of Kings has undoubtedly returned. Isn't that going to be glorious? We won't have to question. What a text. So tribulation will be hard. And when it comes, we need to obey, we need to pray, and we need to wait. Do you remember when you were in elementary school? When you had to go through the motions of a tornado drill. My goodness. The bell would sound and the order would be given and you'd look out the window and see that there wasn't a cloud in the sky and nothing was blowing out there. And you knew, no matter how much they tried to say otherwise, this was a drill. And you'd make your way out into the hallway. The whole class would line up. You had to be quiet. I had the hardest time with that. If you spoke during it, you got detention. I spent way too many days after school in that situation. You had to get on your knees and put your head against the wall. And back in those days, you had to take your hand and put them over your head for however long until the teacher said you could sit back up and return to your, to your place. I tell you, I don't remember how many tornado drills I went through. There were a whole bunch of them. But I can tell you there were one or two times that I went through the motions. I looked out the window, and it was dark. And I heard the sound of the sirens. And it wasn't a tornado drill. It was a real thing. And I was glad that I was ready. Are you going to be ready when the tribulation comes? As the birth pains intensify, let's make sure we're obeying him, that we're praying, 
and that we're waiting on his return. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm so thankful for the text. Jesus tells us these things ahead of time, so we'll be ready. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? It all starts with you trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord. Has there ever been a day in your life that you've transferred all your hope and trust and put it in Christ? The one who died on the cross for you was raised from the dead, conquering death and hell forever. And as you live in relationship with him, as you confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But for all of us in this room, the closer we come to the end of times, the more the birth pains will intensify. We need to be ready. Are you obeying the Lord and his word? Are you studying it every day to know what God's word is? Are you praying with fervor each day as you're anchoring your life and trusting him? Are you waiting on Jesus? I tell you, this text is for all of us here, and I just pray that God will use these truths just to penetrate your heart today. Father, thank you so much for your word. And as we sing this wonderful song, I pray that we'll consider these truths. Thank you so much for this morning of worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen.